Uh, if you're looking towards the front sides of the sanctuary and you're wondering why some of that stuff is up, we left part of uh, the things from a night of uh, the night of thanks up from this past Friday. Great, great evening, and a great time celebrating our Lord and Savior. So, I would encourage you if you have a moment or two after the service, feel free to check that out, participate in that, and uh, be encouraged by that. Um, we'll go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus 12 is where we're going to begin. We're going to finish in the middle of Exodus 13 this morning as we continue through our sermon series uh, in the book of Exodus titled Called Out. And as you're turning to Exodus 12, let me just begin to get our minds moving forward this morning and start by asking you a question and have you start thinking about what are things that we celebrate And just think about that for a moment. What are things that you and I celebrate? What do we celebrate as people? And uh, certainly we celebrate accomplishments and achievements. So you might think about finishing a huge project. You might think about a promotion. Um, If you're in school and and maybe you're graduating, uh, that would certainly be something that would be uh, celebrated. We celebrate milestones, uh, whether it be a birthday, whether it be an anniversary, whether it be a marriage or the birth of a child. Uh, or maybe you celebrate the graduation of that child and that child moving out. Maybe that's what you want to choose uh, to celebrate. Uh, certainly this week, we have on our mind holidays and traditions. And so we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. That'll probably look differently for each of us, but we'll celebrate that in some way, shape, or form. In a few weeks, we'll celebrate Christmas. So there's a number of things that we celebrate. But it's not just things that we celebrate. We also celebrate people. I mean, there are different times where we'll celebrate people. And so um, certainly on, on a birthday or an anniversary, that might be a time that you would celebrate. Or maybe there's designated times that we celebrate specific people. If you think of Mother's Day or Father's Day or just a few weeks ago was Veterans Day. And hopefully we're celebrating veterans. But just at a casual glance, what you and I understand is that we celebrate things and events and we celebrate people. Here's why I start with this is uh, I want to argue today that the celebration of events and even the celebration of people ultimately should lead you and I to a place where we are celebrating God himself. In fact, when you think about some of these things, if you think about a milestone or, or, or you think about a milestone that, that um, you, you, you graduated or that you um, retired or things like that, where you begin to realize that it's God who has sustained you. God gave that to you. God walked you through that. If you think about a particular accomplishment that, 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 that God saw you through that, if you think about us, think about this week about just some of the friends in my life and some of the people in my life and just being honestly overwhelmed when I looked at that and thinking, man, those people, God has allowed those people to be a part part of my life. And in short, here's what I think the text is arguing for us this morning, loved ones. It's this, it's in remembering God's previous work. We are reminded of God's current work in our life, which leads us to a celebration of God himself. Did you hear that? Let me read that again. In remembering God's previous work, we're reminded of God's current work in our life, which is leading us to a celebration of God himself. Now, let me just be really candid here for a moment. One of the dangers of, of American Christianity and one of the dangers of this cultural Christianity that is so pervasive uh, in our day and age is that we are prone to celebrate the prosperity and the blessing and the goodness and, and, and the results of God, not God himself. Becky, just this week, was meeting with a dear friend of ours who has struggled 
uh, for really a substantial part of her life with various various uh, health issues. This was her quote to Becky about her particular issues. I, I love this quote. She said to Becky, I want to make sure that I want the healer more than I want the healing. And I think far too often we do the opposite, don't we? God, if you'll make me better, then I'll love you. Well, what if God says no to that? Then do we quit loving him? And yet as we think about all these things that we're celebrating, really it should drive us to this place where we, we love and are celebrating God himself. And, and what we're going to see in the text, we see this major, monumental, massive event. This is one of the mountain peaks in Scripture. And what God is going to do is he's going to immediately follow this by giving the people of God uh, very specific instructions of, I want you to remember this. We're going to commemorate this. This is how you're going to celebrate this. Um, and really the point is not just to remember the event, but to stir up inside of the people of God a greater love for God himself. And so again, in remembering God's previous work, we're reminded of God's current work in our life, which leads us to a celebration of God himself. And so Dwayne has prayed for our time, so I'm just going to keep plugging right along here. And um, let me start by saying this. Title of the message, title of the message this morning is Celebrating God and His Work. Celebrating God and His Work. Now, in your bulletin, I realized I gave Val the wrong title, so you have the wrong title in your bulletin. The right title is Celebrating God and His Work. Celebrating God's Salvation is not a bad title. It's just not a complete title. Okay, and that one's on me. Um, But this morning, four things, four things from the text that I want us to see with respect to what God is doing and how we're going to celebrate Him and His work. And listen, listen, one of the things that we do uh, in our preaching here that we're we, we want to be deliberate about is we frame uh, the main points of the sermon uh, in, in a way that shows up as some type of imperative or command. And that's intentional. It's deliberate. What we want to do sometimes uh, subtly and other times not so subtly is we want to help uh, the, the listener apply the text right then, right there into their lives. And so you'll notice this morning, right, we're, we're, we celebrate God's deliverance of his people or we celebrate God's liberation from death. So if you're looking at the sermon outline, you see this, that, that there, there's a statement, but it's also an imperative or a command and this morning, part of the reason I'm talking about this is, is one, to help us understand, but two, we're going to actually do that in the service. So y'all better get ready to celebrate. You're going to actually have four different uh, opportunities over the course of the service to do this. But before we get to the really important stuff, let's, let's practice a little bit, right? Practice makes perfect. Um, like you go home and watch an NFL game. Those guys have practiced all week. Um, and so the play's not as sloppy as it would be as if they hadn't practiced. Okay. So let's just practice a little bit. This is where you have to participate. Um, okay. Don't, don't make me call you out. Um, and if you've been here long enough, you know, I just might do that. Okay. But here, we go. So let's practice a couple of things that we can celebrate. Here's the scenario. You're in your home or you're walking into your home. You've had a really good day. Your spouse had a really good day. Hey, honey, I just got a 50% raise. Okay, great. That's something to celebrate. A couple of claps, some woos. No one got to their feet. That's okay. It's practice. We're, we're, we're growing here. All right. Um, true confessions. How many people never struggled with math throughout all of your school years? We hate all of you guys, okay? Okay, so for a moment, just imagine, just imagine that your child isn't like you, and they're struggling, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and they have studied so hard for this test. Son or daughter walks through the door. Mom, I got a 97% today. Okay, right? Right? Okay, here's the third one. 
Here's the story. And you're getting better, by the way. I like this. Okay, we're moving forward. Um, your team, just so we're clear, your team can never be the Patriots, okay? Um, your team... <laughs> Your team just scored a touchdown with two seconds left to take the lead over the Patriots. Now, okay, I say that for a couple of reasons. One, because I can't stand the Patriots, and they only lose hypothetically. Um, they don't seem to lose in reality. But here's the other reason, and here's why I went with this one third. Listen, loved ones, I think, I think sports often, often, often puts the church to shame when it comes to celebration. Because listen to me, if you've ever been to a football game, what happens when your team scores? See, a couple of you did it. You're on your feet, and, and sometimes you're screaming so hard, you're like on the, it starts to get a little bit fuzzy, right? You're starting to black out. And then, but that, that's not it. What do you start doing? You start high-fiving the people around you. And then this is the thing that's crazy to me. You start hugging people you don't even know their name. Right? I mean, seriously, that's what happens. And it's a game. And yet, what do we do? We'll come to church or we'll show up at a Bible study or, or we'll do something centered around the person of God. Hey, how much longer? That's okay. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad for that. That's to our shame. That's an indictment upon all of us, that I would be more fired up. I would be more excited that I would celebrate at a far greater level, a game. Granted, it's it's a game many of us enjoy, but it's a game over the living, breathing savior of the world. Because what we're talking about here this morning is far more important, far more important than making some more money or acing a test or, or, or scoring a touchdown. Okay. You ready? So you're going to get four cracks at this. And it should only get better as we go. So let me give it to you. Let's celebrate and then we'll walk through the text. Ready? Here we go. First of all, we celebrate God's deliverance of his people. All right. Okay, that's good. Now, do you see? Okay, that's the baseline. It can only get better. All right? Okay. But we celebrate God's deliverance of his people. Now, let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. This isn't a pep rally. This is church. All right? Uh, So Exodus 12, starting in verse 29. This is where we actually ended last week. But notice, here's what's happening. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And so this final plague comes upon uh, the, the nation of Egypt. Now notice what the text goes on to tell us in verse 33 and following. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. See, what the people of Egypt realized long before Pharaoh realizes, hey, we're losing. And uh, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Just let them go. And, and so get them out. Verse 34. So the people, is this the people of Israel, took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. So like in the kitchen making bread. It's like, oh, got to go. Pop on my shoulder and we're going. The people of Israel, verse 35, had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. 
When the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. And then starting in verse 37 through verse 42, you have this summary, not only of what's happening here in the Exodus in their leaving, but all the way back to where um, their time in Egypt started. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, for they had prepared, for, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night, so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And so here, this first thing that we see around celebrating God and his work is that we celebrate God's deliverance of his people. This event right here will, will, be, will be the motivation for all of the other mot- the celebrations that are going to come uh, later on in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Let me make three notes here about this, this, this celebrating God and his deliverance. First of all, note this in verses 29 to 32 is you have God's final judgment on Egypt. You have God's final judgment on Egypt. And there's something fascinating about the dialogue between Pharaoh and Moses here that is starkly contrasted to all the other dialogue uh, that we've seen up to this point. And so where, 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 where Pharaoh was, was harsh and he saw the people of Israel as his own and they were meant to serve and to worship him, now what's he saying? Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord. And he's saying, take everybody. Take your kids, take your flocks, as you've heard, be gone. I mean, he recognizes that he is defeated. This is part of the final judgment upon Egypt. And the only reason it didn't fall on Israel as well is because of the blood. They were spared because of the blood of the lamb that was shed for them, which is, of course, pointing us forward to the cross. But the final judgment of Egypt, is, it's, it's really a reminder for us that we too are sinful, that we too are deserving of that judgment. But the only reason that we don't come under that judgment is because of what Christ has done for us. And so in both of these, it's driving us back to the person of Jesus and celebrating his work on our behalf. And so even in judgment, listen to me, even in judgment, the mercy and grace of God is evident. And so you have God's final judgment on Egypt. Secondly, in verse 33 to 36, you have God's provision for Israel. God is making provision for his people. And, and, and so he, he begins to send them out. And just make note of this. When God delivers, he will spare us from his wrath, and then he is going to give us what we need. Now, let's just make sure we're clear. Let's make the distinction between giving us what we want and giving us what we need. Because sometimes we get a little crooked or a little sideways when what I want is what I impose upon God, that this is what I need. And then we get into kind of some weird, odd prosperity gospel um, crookedness that we don't really want to go to. But let's hold this idea of just giving us what we need in tension with the character of God. Because God's not pinching pennies either, is he? He's not like, okay, uh, one, two, three, you can survive on that. There you go. Okay, next, one, two... That's not a God who gives sparingly. He is a God who gives 
generously. He's a God who gives fully and excessively. He gives above and beyond. You ever been in a place where just the the fullness of God and the abundance of God and the generosity of God just is overflowing in your life? You ever experienced that? You ever been there? Becky and I have a phrase for this. It's kind of our joke um, or kind of inside joke on this. And we just have this little saying where we say favor ain't fair. Favor ain't fair. God's favor isn't fair. God gives generously to his children, and sometimes it's not fair, right? Yeah, that's like every parent's favorite line to tell their child, life's not fair, right? Favor's not fair. God gives you more and I than, uh, he gives more to you and I than we deserve. He gives generously to his children. Now, when I say that, do not think solely or primarily about physical or material things. Yeah, sometimes that's part of God's favor is he gives us physical things. But sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, I would suggest to you that it's something different. God's favor to his children might be peace in the midst of a difficult season or situation. It might be comfort in a time of grief. It might be joy in in this season of hardship. It might be confidence when everyone else around you is wavering and on the brink. And then, yes, sometimes, sometimes it's a physical or a material blessing. So this week, um, here's one way, one of a number of ways that I saw this this week. But uh, this week at my house on Tuesday evening, the doorbell rang. And then when I opened the door, there was someone holding about 15 pounds of beef. Which, just in case you're wondering, that's always a good gift to give to anybody. Um, and if it's like, well, I'm a vegetarian. I don't know, bring him cucumbers and zucchinis or something like that. Okay, but, but that was awesome. And, and so Becky and I were like, wow, that's incredible. And then as soon as those folks left, we just looked at each other and we said, yeah, right, favor ain't fair. Favor ain't fair. Now, here's what I want you to understand, that in the same way that God is making provision for the people of Israel here in the Exodus, he does the same for you and I. He's giving you, loved one, what you need. He's giving you exactly what you need. And when that happens, the appropriate response is that you and I would celebrate that. So God's provision for Israel tied to the deliverance of the, uh, of the people. And then thirdly, we see this in verse 37 to 42. There's this just kind of this summary of God leading his people. God is leading his people out of, of uh, Egypt into uh, the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. Now, I, I'm not going to talk much. Just, just I know some of you might want me to hit on the 600,000 or the different years. And I understand there's some, some different issues with that. But let me just say that's not the emphasis of the text. And so that's not what the emphasis of the sermon is. And so if you have questions about those numbers of those years, I'm happy to talk about it. But the thrust of verse 37 through 42 is around God leading his people. That's what he's, he, he's telling us about. He's taking them out of what they knew into something that they did not know, something that was unknown to them. Is this scary for the nation of Israel? Uh, probably. Is it uncomfortable? Most likely. Are they secure? You better believe it. Because they are being led by God. In fact, one of the, one of the most beautiful images that runs over and over and over again in the book of Exodus is how God will walk his people through the wilderness and take them to where they need to be, when they need to be there, not before that and not after that. In fact, let me give you one example real quick. Flip over to Exodus 13, 17. This is where we'll start next week. 
Exodus 13, 17 says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. See, God knew what they could and couldn't handle in that moment. He's going, um, if they see this, if we start walking down this road, if we go to this place, they might turn around and go right back. So I'm going to redirect them over here. I'm going to reroute them uh, in another area uh, so that they're going to have exactly what they need. We're going to be in the specific place. Uh, They're going to be in the specific place that they need to be. I feel like I say this every week as we've moved through this sermon series, but loved one, can you trust, listen to me, can you trust God's leading in your life? Can you trust? Of course, always you can. But, but I'm asking you, in, 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 in between the, the lines of Sundays on a Tuesday afternoon or when something crazy, can I trust that God is leading in my life? You might find yourself today in a really uncomfortable season of life. You, you might uh, find yourself in, in the midst of hardship or suffering. May, maybe it's not a negative thing. Maybe it's a really positive thing. Maybe God has been really prosperous with you and, and, and you're just in a, in, in a flush season, a season of plenty. Maybe you just have this incredible inner peace, even though there's turmoil going on around you. It's not always bad. Because we've got to ask this question both when things are bad, but also when things are good. Can I trust God's leading in my life? And here's the reality, because there's a huge ramification as to whether or not we're going to do this. If you will, listen to me, loved ones, if you will trust God's leading in your life, then you can embrace whatever God brings. You can embrace whatever God brings, knowing that God has chosen to allow that or permit that um, in your life at that moment, because that is what is right or what is best. That is powerful in its implication and application in our lives. See, if I can trust God's leading in my life, then regardless of what happens, I can know this is a part of his plan and that he is at work within this. And this is ultimately what is best for me. Might not be what I prefer. Might not be what I like. Might not, might not be easy, but it is best. And so you might walk out of here today and and your life might blow up. The wheels might fall off of your life this week in a way that they never have. You might get a phone call sometime in the next couple of days that changes everything for you. But listen, listen, listen. If you choose to embrace what God brings your way, you can trust his leading regardless of the circumstances. So we celebrate God's deliverance of his people. I can look at you. You guys are ready to get rowdy again, so i got to move on. Here we go, second one. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Here's the second one. The end of Exodus 12, verse 43 to 51. Here's the principle. We celebrate God's liberation from death. Woo! All right. Here we go. Let me read the text. You guys want to do it again? Let's do it again. Hold on. Here we go. We celebrate God's liberation from death. Come on. Yeah. That's a big one, isn't it? All right. Okay. Now let me read the text. Exodus 12, 43. I'm just laughing. This is so much fun. Um, Exodus 12, 43 tells us this. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. So now he's like, let me lay out for you how you're going to remember this. No foreigner shall eat of it. 
But every Now, hold on to that thought, because we're going to come back to that in a second. You're going to go, wait a second, what's he actually saying? But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall, sh- shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. For there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And so notice the response of the people here. Verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. We celebrate God's liberation from death. And what we see, okay, what we see in, in, in terms of Passover, right? Passover shows us the pattern of salvation, right? That the blood of a perfect sacrifice is going to be what will atone for our sins and, and what will spare us from death, thus freeing us or liberating us from death. And so let me just highlight two things. Let me just highlight two things here in... Um, Uh, this particular portion around this idea of celebrating God's liberation from death. First of all, look at verse 47. He says this, he says, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So he's given a bunch of instructions about, hey, this or that, or, you know, you got to get circumcised or whatnot. But, But by verse 47, he's going, listen, the whole of Israel shall keep it. And of course, when you get on into verse 48 and following, you also see that it actually is for foreigners. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that here in just a moment, but notice this first of all, that we share this as a community. This is a corporate celebration. This is a collective celebration. It's communal. God has always intended that his people would celebrate collectively or corporately. And often we think about salvation in individualistic terms, or it's like, it's about me and Jesus. And yet, here's what I can't understand about that. When you read the scriptures... When you read the scriptures, it's rarely talking about this personal relationship. It is often talking about this corporate or or, or, or communal relationship that exists amongst the people. Let me just look at the New Testament, for example. Most of it is written to churches. It's written to groups of people. And then uh, much of what is written to individuals is actually written to those individuals to help them know how uh, to run or to order or to structure the churches. Loved ones, this is why what's happening right now is so important. This is why Sunday morning is so important. This is why being in discipleship is so important. There's this corporate component to our faith. At least there should be. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 10. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. See, even in the biblical times, people had issues going to church. They saw it as optional or when it was convenient or when it worked. But the author goes on to say, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I just, let me just be really candid that it blows my mind, it blows my mind when I hear people talk about, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, Jesus is my homeboy, or whatever else we want to say, but then we turn around and we go, oh, I don't want to go to church. The church is messy, the church is broken, the church is issues, man, the church is dysfunctional. 
Those people are weird. Now, let me just ask you a question. The primary metaphor that is used between the relationship of Christ and the church in the New Testament is what? Husband and wife, the bride. Let me just, let's take it out of that context for a second. Let me just put it in maybe something that would be a little easier for us to understand. Um, this, this, okay, this next statement has never been uttered, uh, though the inverse of this probably has been uttered at some point in time. Um, but imagine, imagine if you came to me and you said, Mike, I love you. I love being with you. It's so easy to follow you. You're just amazing. But your wife, man, she just, oh, your wife. She's annoying, or she's got issues, or she's controlling. What do you think I'm going to do with that? Oh, yeah, man, I know. (laughs) Yeah, that's never going to happen, right? And and, and I'm not going to, like, buddy up and be like, hey, let's just you and I hang out. I don't want anything to do with you. You don't like my wife. You don't have to like my, if you don't like my wife, you've got, you've got issues. Okay. You don't like me. You're normal. You don't like my wife. You've got issues, but I don't want anything to do with you. Don't come to me all buddy, buddy, and think you can trash my wife. Let's go to the parking lot. That's where we're going to go. Now, listen, listen. If that's how any normal, broken, flawed husband would respond, why would we think that Jesus would be like, oh, yeah, that's the perfect way to do it? You want to talk about someone's bride and getting messed up? That's what we do. You're mocking the bride of Christ. Good luck with that. Here's the deal. I get it. I, I, I get it that the church is messy. The church is broken. The church has issues. Let's not even make it generic. Let's just be real pointed about us. We're messy. Faith church is messy because we, right, myself included, are a collection of very broken, flawed individuals. However, however, this is how God has chosen to organize his people. See, it's corporate. It's collective. You will find zero evidence in the scriptures that you can go do your Lone Ranger thing with Jesus and he's cool with it. You won't find it. I mean, you're welcome to, I'd encourage you to read the New Testament. Maybe, hey, go see if you can find it. Good luck with that. Okay. Um, but you're just telling you, right? You're not going to find it. Okay. So we share this as a community. Here's, here's the other thing that, that, that you got to notice is, is look at verse 48 and 49. I mean, this is just so incredibly powerful of uh, what we see here. Verse 48, if a stranger shall sojourn, those three S's are killer, uh, with you and should keep or would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. That's insane. He's just saying, hey, this foreigner, this sojourner, if he will abide by the religious or spiritual laws, he's just like anyone else. And he contrasts that with this next statement. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And then this next line is incredible. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Part of celebrating God's liberation is that this is for all of God's people. This is for all of God's people. And and what he instantly does is he wants to connect this celebration back to Abraham. And you're like, wait, he didn't say anything about Abraham. Yeah, it is. Anytime you see that word circumcision, you have to run back to Abraham. 
Because circumcision was the sign of the covenant. What's important to remember about the covenant with Abraham is that it had the nations collectively as the recipient of the blessings from God. And so what you see in the very first Passover is that foreigners were able to participate, but they had to do so on God's terms in the same way that the nation of Israel was welcome to participate, but they too had to do so on God's terms. Here's what I want you to identify right here in the text, is that Passover was not ethnically defined. It was spiritually defined. Race is not what excluded you. Gender is not what included or excluded you. Whether or not you were submitted to the Lord in faith was the entrance or the exit for participation in Passover. And so in the same way, right, in that same way that this is true here in Exodus, that when you go forward into the New Testament and you see in the book of Galatians, Paul's talking about circumcision there. And he's saying, listen, it's not physical circumcision that saves you. It is a spiritual circumcision that saves you. That we're liberated from death through the gospel of Jesus. And we celebrate that with those who belong to Jesus. And so, loved ones, this is for all of God's people. But make no mistake, it defines very clearly who God's people are. It's not an ethnic group. It's not a race. It's not a gender. It is for those who are submitted to the Lord in faith. Just ask you this morning, do you belong to the Lord? Are you his? Are you submitted to him in faith? So we celebrate God's liberation from death. All right, thirdly, let's take it up a notch. Okay, we've done well. Let's go to the next level. You ready? We celebrate God's liberation from slavery. Woo! Yeah! I love seeing that someone finally went to someone else. We still can't do what they do all over stadiums in America over someone scoring a touchdown. Come on, man, let's, let's, let's get into this a little bit. Let's do it again. We've got to do it again. Just got to do it again. All right, here we go. We celebrate God's liberation from slavery. Yeah. On the last one, I'm running through and I want high fives, okay? Here we go. He, he, in chapter 13, he moves to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let me read verses 13, uh, starting in verse... Uh, sorry, chapter 13, verses 3 through 10. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you're going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you will keep this service in this month. He's like, you're going to do this, and you're going to keep doing this, and, and it's a good thing to do this. Here's what you're going to do, verse 6. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And then check out verse 8. This is awesome. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the, law, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And then here's this statement here for the second time. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Right, we celebrate God's liberation from slavery. 
and were Passover. Passover and the lamb was representative of being spared from death. The, the, the feast of unleavened bread and, and, and what's going on with that week is, is reminding them that they are liberated from their slavery. Right? And there's no leaven because they didn't have time for the dough to rise and just boom, out they go. Let me just highlight two things here, two things uh, on this idea of we celebrate God's liberation from slavery. First of all, we're reminded that God frees us. We're reminded that God frees us. And so if you look in verse 3 and you also look in verse 9, there's this, this phrase, this statement that shows up that really bookends this part of the text. He says, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. It's God who's done this. We didn't free ourselves. God did this. That, that's what Moses is saying. Now, here's the connection for today. Is this slavery that we see depicted in the scriptures, this is a type, this is a prefigurement of the slavery that you and I understand and recognize as sin. The slavery that Israel experienced at the hands of Egypt is similar to the slavery that we experience at the hands of sin. So question, can you free yourself from the grip of sin? Can't do it, can you? Right? I mean, that's just like ludicrous to even think about that. And any of us who, who, are, who are aware of the fact that we struggle with sin, which is all of us, by the way, we all struggle with sin, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have an, ang- you, you have an anger issue, you don't wake up one morning and go, nope, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I mean, you can try it. Here's typically what happens, right? I'm not going to be angry anymore. And then something happens, you get a little mad. You're like, oh, I'm just kind of like doing this. And then you just kind of keep getting poked. And, and it's just like, yeah, it's like a volcano just waiting to erupt. I mean, that's what's going to happen. Eventually, it's just going to have this explosion of you all over the place, and it's going to be ugly and nasty. You don't wake up one morning going, hey, you know, I've really struggled with gossip, but I'm going to conquer that thing today. You don't have sexual sins or sexual struggles that, that you've wrestled with for months, years, or decades, and just go, hey, you know, I'm kind of sick and tired of this. I think I'm going to be over this. You don't, you don't have this rejection of authority of the person of God and just go, hey, I'm going to change that. You don't wake up and conquer any of that. You don't bootstrap sin out of your life. You understand what I'm saying? It owns you. That thing owns you until what? Until by a strong hand you were let out of that. It's God who frees us. And so we celebrate our liberation and we are reminded that it's God and God alone who's going to walk us and free us from that. But here's the other thing that shows up here that I think is incredibly pointed and so important for us. Look at verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. See, we're reminded that God frees us. And one of the ways that we keep that in front of us is we pass this on to future generations. So parents, let me just be really pointed here with you for a moment. It is your job. Listen to me. It is your job to pass along to your children the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's yours. You are the primary source of this. It's not the church. It's not some other ministry. It's not school. It's you. Now, those are, those are ancillary helps that certainly come alongside, but it is your job to pass along the gospel to your children. Now, let me talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean for a moment. Here, here's what this means. 
That you will be held responsible for whether or not you explained, whether or not you presented, whether or not you shared, whether or not you invested, whether or not you lived out, whether, whether or not you made the gospel primary and priority in your life for your children. You are on the hook for all of that. Just kind of scary, isn't it? It's actually really scary. If you're not scared by that, then I'm not sure if you're even paying attention. Here's what it doesn't mean. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Because I've watched far too many parents be crushed by something that you don't have to be crushed by. You are responsible to put the gospel in front of your children. You are not responsible for what they do with it. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? You are not responsible what they do with it. Any parent that loves Jesus and loves their child would demand and force that they be saved if they could, but you can't. All you can do is put in front of your child over and over and over again the goodness of Jesus, but you are not on the hook for what they do with that. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat with parents who are just broken and crushed because their child is far from the Lord. And there's not much consolation in the fact of, listen, you're not on the hook for that. But there is incredible consolation in how you live day to day, realizing that God, that God's not going to hold you to that. He's going to hold you to whether or not you put it in front of them. He's not going to hold you to that if they choose to reject it. Your job is to as faithfully as a broken parent can Point your children to Jesus. Let me say one other thing about this. It doesn't stop when they turn 18 or move out of the house. You stop parenting when you die. (laughs) Serious. That's when you're done. And if you don't like that, quit exercising, eat a ton of bad food, and I don't do somebody, and you can accelerate the process if you want. I don't know what else to tell you. You don't quit parenting until you're dead. And actually don't, don't walk out here and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to stuff down six whoppers because my pastor said I could. That's not what I said. I was joking. Okay. <laughs> one other thing, just one other thing. I don't do it often, but you know, when there's, when there's great resources available, I like to make them known. Paul Tripp, Paul Tripp has this incredible book. Um, it's called Parenting 14 Gospel Principles That Radically Change Parenting or Your Life. Or I can't remember the subtitle on all of that. Um, I am reading through that right now, and it has been amazing. And great, great book. Would highly recommend it. Now, I'm not done with it, so if you get to the last chapter and he goes full heretical, um, I, this is full disclosure. I haven't read the end of the book yet. I'm still working through it. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that's not going to happen. But great, great resource. Very, very helpful uh, if you want to check that out. Okay, here's the final one. I'll just tell you right now. It's the best one. This is the best one. So it should warrant the best response on our part as well. Okay, you ready? You might want to set your Bibles down. Okay, just put it on the seat next to you. All right, there's a little more room in the sanctuary this morning. You guys ready? Okay, here we go. We celebrate God's redemption of his children. Yeah! Woo! 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 Yes! Is that not awesome? Why are you sitting down? That, listen to me, okay? I know I look like a moron right now, and I don't care, because that is a glorious truth. 
that we are redeemed. Look at what he says. Let me just quickly, verse 11 uh, and following. And the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you, you and your fathers and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of the man among your sons you shall redeem. That's a beautiful truth. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? Here it is again, parents, right? Uh, Explaining to our children, you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Praise God for that. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. We celebrate God's redemption of his children. Two things, two things briefly. First of all this, we see this idea of redemption through sacrifice. Redemption through sacrifice. The concept of the firstborn points us to this idea of substitute. It it, it points us to this idea of replacement. And so check it out. Here's what would happen every single generation. Right, the firstborn comes, and, and, and so it's like, hey, we're, we're, go, we're going to redeem this, or we're going to sacrifice this, uh, depending on, obviously you're not going to sacrifice one of your children, but you would redeem your child, or maybe you would sacrifice the lamb. Um, uh, and so it reminds us what God has done. Right? We look back to what God has done. But then a new generation would come, and what happens? So you have to do it again. And so it, it, it keeps in front of us that, it, that we're going to have to keep doing this. And so what it really does is it's pointing the people forward to a time where they will no longer have to do this because it will be done for them by God. And so as each son or daughter would be redeemed, it was a reminder to their families that their children were purchased through blood. Do you know that's true for you and I? Do you know that you and I are purchased through blood? I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, that we're bought with a price. Titus 2, speaking of Jesus, that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. One of the things that's fascinating about this particular section is he's talking about donkeys and he refers to them as, or or that they're unclean, and that's a spiritual reference, um, that, that, that they're unclean or they're not worthy to be sacrificed. And it connects people to donkeys, that we're unclean. Right, that we need to be redeemed, that, that a price has to be paid. And so that's what God does. We belong to God because he's created us, but we also belong to God because he's redeemed us or he's purchased us. And one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite uh, stories that I've shared multiple times uh, over the course of different sermons, but, but I think it's so appropriate, is the story of a young boy who, uh, who, who had this model toy boat that he crafted and built and, and put a lot of love and, and energy and effort into, and he created this thing. And he would take this little sailboat down to this lake nearby, and he would put it out on the lake, and it would go out. And then as it would eventually come back in onto one of the shorelines, he would go and retrieve it. And this little boy just loved. This was his favorite thing to do with, with his boat. And so one particular day, he puts the boat on the lake, and out it goes. And searching the shoreline, searching, 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 never able to find that boat. For days, he returned looking, uh, hoping, uh, longing that maybe, just maybe, there it would be. And, of course, it's not there. 
One day walking by a local toy shop in the window, what does he see? He sees his boat. And he goes into the shopkeeper and he says, that's my boat, that's my boat, like, that, that's mine, you have to give that to me. And the shopkeeper says, no, no, if, if you want this, you have to buy this. So the little boy goes and he works and saves up uh, all of his money from all of his work. And finally on that day, going in and dumping all that money on the counter and as they count it out, and the shopkeeper hands him his boat. The shopkeeper hears the little boy as he's holding his boat, looking at it lovingly. And he says, now you are twice mine. Once because I made you and once because I bought you. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what he does for us, right? It's the, it's the redemption of his children. This redemption through sacrifice. And of course, it's, it's typified in the reality that Christ is our firstborn. Christ is our firstborn. Right? God offered up his firstborn not to be redeemed, but to be a redeemer. He is the sacrifice so that we could be restored to God. What a beautiful Beautiful picture and reality. All right, I know you want to do it one more time. I know it. I know you do. So here we go. Just put everything aside. And uh, I'm going to read them all. Tell you what, if I don't even get through the end of it because you guys start going crazy, that'd be cool too. I mean, I'd be okay with that. But listen, if you're going to go home today and pump your fist and scream and kick and whatnot as you watch the Broncos or the Cowboys or whoever it is, then by all means, by all means, you should take it to another level because, let's be honest, that's a game. This is the Savior of the universe. Okay, you ready? Let me me tell you a funny story real quick. (laughs) So so years ago, years ago, when when we were in Flagstaff, I... um, I'd only preached maybe five, six times at that point in time. And, and I was in this men's group, a couple other young guys. And so I was telling them about, we were going to kind of do something similar to this. And so there was one guy in my group. I mean, guys just painfully, painfully shy, would rarely talk, just none of that. And so I'm like, and I just wasn't sure how are they going to respond? What are they going to do? And so I said, I just need you guys to kind of set the tone for me. And I said, I'll make it real obvious. You'll know when. And so we were just in this tiny little building, really low roofs. And so, so my buddy jumped the gun. Um, and before it was time and he jumps, stands up on his seat, jumps up, woohoo! And as he throws his fist in the air, actually punches one of the projectors in the room. Keep in mind, no one else is doing anything. They haven't done any of this stuff. And it was just this super awkward moment. I was like, what just happened? So, so we just kind of had to speed ahead and get like right to it. Cause, um, my poor friend, uh, didn't want, I didn't want him to suffer too much. And I, and so I was kind of afterwards like, Hey man, I'm so, so sorry. And, and he just said, man, celebrating for Jesus. Yes. It was embarrassing totally worth it. And if you knew this guy, you would know how much that meant. So we're going to celebrate. You guys ready? Okay, here we go. Here we go. We celebrate. We celebrate God's deliverance of his children, his liberation from death, his liberation from slavery, and our redemption as children. Yeah!